morning, Brother John. Good morning, Brother Jerry. Wow. Ooh. What a oh. day. Yeah, I smell something. I smell something. Excuse me. I got to chomp on this something here. Mm. Uh, mm. What are you chomping mm. on? Yeah. Mm. Well, we're on. A, we're doing the show. That's green room stuff. What, what's the bottom line is that I had these Kolachkis last week, and all you got to do is, I got three left. Uh, they're sitting right here. Well, actually, two. One's gone since we've started the show. Uh, the, the I put them in a the microwave and put them on a, a kind of a reheat, and they're just as fresh as I bought them last week at the bakery. So I'm wow. sorry. Uh, wow. I got two left, and I think I'm going to eat both of them. Uh, sorry. Uh, maybe next time you'll have a chance. Uh, all, right. all you got to do is get your butt up here, and you'll have a klotzky. Mm. <laughs> well, I, I plan on doing that in April. Yeah. Ooh, but they taste so good. So, they do. Uh, We've got yeah, some big stuff coming taste... in April. Ooh, and wow. the deal is, with the snow here that we've got, it's just so nice and peaceful to look out, to see all that snow. There's about, uh, they're, they're saying, there's probably about eight or nine inches. They're predicting another four before the end of the weekend. Just to be out here, and eating kolachkis, looking at the snow is very, very good. Yeah, it's, uh, the, snow snows down, uh, the snow slows down all the shooters and hijackers, uh, carjackers. Yeah, well, you see, snow is very political here because oh. mayors have lost elections because of snow. So everybody, you know, you, you've uh -huh. got the mayor, uh, Rom has to have a, a special uh, newscast, a special, uh, you know, show there where he gets on the news so that he can give everybody what they should do during the snow. You know, we've got this rule called the Dibs rule. The Dibs rule is that if you if you basically... Shovel out a section, your car, on the street, and you put a chair there, that means don't ever think about, some, somebody else should never think about taking that spot. It's called the dibs rule. Nice. And the mayor gets on, gets on the news and lets everybody, make sure that everybody understands the dibs rule. In fact, if you want to, you can actually buy chairs that say Chicago with the four stars on it, dibs on it, so you could have an official dibs chair. That's remarkable. That is truly remarkable. Well, New down here, it's, it's, it's absurd because we don't have snow. <laughs> but, but it's remarkable because, after all, I'm from the Midwest and lived in Iowa for a long time, went to school in Illinois. So I understand what you're talking about. I can still relate. I got, yeah, I got a text message from our, uh, one of our previous uh, guests, Vince Lauder, who lived in Chicago and lived in the city. And he was annoyed by the fact that the mayor during that newscast, announced that the public schools would be closed on Friday. And he said, we never had the schools closed because of snow. Of course, I had to ask him, how many miles did you actually walk to school to? Because yeah. I'm sure it was at least 10. Uphill uh, both ways. Yeah. We all and know that so, uh, but that is, that's another thing. They're very, you know, just like news has become sensationalized, weather is sensationalized. So as a result, they make a big deal about it. I, I kick a cab back last, yesterday from the hospital. And the doggone cab driver, he's Polish. He says, why aren't people working today? Why not? Why not? I don't understand. There's not that much snow. I had to agree with him. Wow. Because the poor, you know, these poor cab drivers are out there, and it's like a ghost town on Friday when it should be like a Friday, a busy, bustling day. And what do we have? We got a bunch of weather wimps, you know, staying inside, eating kolach. Oh, that's oh, Sorry. What? Wait a minute. That's you, weather wimp. <laughs> 
Hey, what shirt are you wearing? What shirt are you wearing? Uh, I got an original on. Hey, listen, I'm lucky I can even remember to put a shirt on. Why? Uh, well, I had a little trip to the hospital yesterday. Uh, but I got that behind me. Thank God. Literally. <laughs> yeah, everything's <laughs> all good. Behind. We'll, we'll, do a, we'll do a thumbs up and describe that some other day. But uh, yeah. yeah, things are looking good uh, in terms of my moving along the, the cancer treatment trail. <laughs> yeah, we'll have a whole talk about stool stacking and fecal fragmentation. Yeah. Oh, I like that. That's good. I know. Yeah, that's so, the good stuff. Uh, hey, but 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 you know that that's another that's another show. I know. How about and, and, how about we got a show today too? Too, I think. Uh, John, we do we have uh, one? <clears throat> you haven't asked me. Oh, what are you wearing? I'm, I'm wearing sorry, the one yeah. you wore last week, the full color. Oh, the uh, Technicolor tee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, you you're you're yeah. Got all the wonderful color on. That's good. Yeah. You know what that, though? That, my blanket and my panties. I'm all ready to go. I got my girl, God. big girl panties on. <gasps> I like that big girl panties on here. Yeah, they're the best. A uh, little shout out to Steve McIntosh, by the way. He gave me a call yesterday. He's been listening to every show religiously. Uh, mm. He 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 uh, he he really is liking uh, what we've been doing lately, I guess. But anyways, he he uh, yeah, he's a big fan. Uh, he's bought a T-shirt. He's 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 doing the whole deal. So if you want a T-shirt. S H I R T shirt dot bro dot show. Just type that in your URL field in your web browser, and you'll have the opportunity to get a, a great T-shirt. Yeah, when you type that out, make sure not to leave the R, R out. You wouldn't want that. <laughs> yeah, shit, shit dot bro dot show. <laughs> should should I make another subdomain for that? <laughs> oh God, that gets us, you know, because that gets us to the fact that speaking, uh, and that's what. Our whole podcast is going to be about today. It's about getting up front and center and telling it like it is. Yeah, standing. So I agree. um, You know, as we take a look, what we're going to talk about today is allocution. Uh, Quite often, if you put that, if you try to put that into your your computer or your phone, you're going to be coming up with allocation because it's so close. In addition to the fact. That if you look for the verb, uh, it, it, it's it's like missing an action. It's not going to. It's in most dictionaries. You won't find allocute. You'll find alo- allocution. Alo- yes, alo- but you will not find uh, allocute. So, but what does this all mean, and why mm, yeah, is it so yeah, important? Yeah, yeah. You know, this this is this word is a kind of word. That what happens is you add it to your vocabulary because it's being used so much now, uh, in so many ways. Um, we see not only, I guess the biggest is the Me Too in general. I mean, come on, that's what yeah. it is. Yeah, that, that is what it is. It's, uh, the gymnast is what really brought this to the fore. Yeah, is, but uh, the bottom line oh. is we can dial down and we can look at something very specific here. As, as yes. we see every day, Me Too, you could just say equals allocution, and you, you'd be correct. But we're going to dial oh, down a, to the there's gymnast. There's a wrinkle, though. There's a wrinkle, John, in the last week. We've had two White House aides have to resign because of uh, spouse abuse. So that's yeah. another wrinkle on me too. Is in general, women just aren't taking it anymore. Yeah, um, it's an interesting one that can, continues to evolve. Uh, it's yeah. just amazing when you think it's lost its legs. Um, you, you, you this morning you wake up and find out there's more. Oh and, yeah, uh, yeah. 
Well, you know, I've been thinking about this, John, and this is one of your areas too. Uh, we always follow the money in a lot of these stories. And I think that's yeah. part of it is that as wages start to balance a little bit anyway, uh, I think I think the women involved are just doing the math. They're going, wow, why am I doing this? You know, why am I playing along with all this bullshit? Uh, mm -hmm. I, I don't need to. I, I won't be worse off without this guy. Or if I don't get this part, you know, if it's if it's a creepy director or something, uh, it just isn't worth it. I'm not going to do it. And not only that, uh, I'm going to roast this guy's gonads. Yeah, I think there is an indirect effect that could, could that permeate. Um, you know, I mean, there's a direct effect as you've described. But even if we take a look at the, uh, the the sexual harassment situation on a much broader plane, and mm -hmm. look at uh, companies in general, uh, that that's what's happening. It used to be, well, I can't say anything because it's going to result in me uh, losing my job. Now you say something, and all of a sudden, you know what? It's like, by the way, while we're talking about that, how about getting my pay with my job equal to what that other clown is on the other side of, of the aisle? Yeah. Why yeah. don't I? We'll just throw that in, too, while we're at it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the right thing. Uh, yeah, in fact, if you, if you ever watch Jimmy Kimmel, he does this thing where he goes out on the streets and interviews people, and one of my favorite segments is when he interviews kids. And he... He interviews these kids and asks them a, a question. And uh, he did one on adultery. And none of the kids knew what adultery was. They thought mostly it was acting like an adult. And wow. they had to rephrase the question to get an answer. Uh, but then also, uh, they, they do these really hot topics with these little kids. And pretty amazing the things they say and how smart they are. And one of them was equal pay. <laughs> Guess what? Jimmy is just taking a, a page out of the art link letter playbook that and steve People, allen <laughs> yeah because art Linkletter used to do the same thing with kids yeah where he, he would just and he would kind of engage them in a conversation and it'd be interesting yeah. uh how much you know it's kind of it, it's kind of like what they don't know but even more impressive is the insight often these kids have at a very early age and can say it yeah. so succinctly and so simply that it, it's amazing oh yeah it but is nice it's nice yeah, Art Lincoln, our kids say the darndest things. But we we're, but we got a we allocution at a at a very specific thing that's taking place, and that's something we discussed earlier, and that's the uh, the USA gymnasts uh, coming forth in large number. A number actually, I said a hundred hundred and sixty is the number that's sitting out there in the yeah. in all the news, but it's more than that because there's been more than one trial with Larry. And another one has come up, and there's another 60 or plus you can add on to the 160. I mean, it's a growing number. Um, yeah, it is. But and what when, it did, when we first when we first talked about it, it was 150, and it was five days. But then yeah. we we were only part way through the process and didn't realize that it kept coming. Yeah. So the what we have here though is a a very very good demonstration of how the judicial process works as it relates to crime victims and their rights and how a big part of their rights rest in the fact that they can have an equal footing as it relates to the judicial process and they can have actually have allocution, which means that they can speak. And um, as we take a look at it and at the definition, it's, it's important in the context of this. Quite often what we've seen in the past is we've seen that allocution has been, a, been something that's, that is for the perpetrator. 
And mm-hmm. uh, because what and it's a typical thing, uh, a sentence is beginning is going to be given. Uh, do you have something to say beforehand? And how many times and how long ago have we heard that? Yeah, yeah, it's been going on it's for been a there while. for a long time. Yeah, fact, and, and you, usually it's remorse. That's what the that's yeah, what the lawyer hopes he'll say. <laughs> I know, and quite often we see in here in Chicago we see just the opposite. It's uh, it's kind yeah. of sad. It can be good and it can be bad. Uh, but that uh, the thing is that if you go to Wikipedia and you put that word in, you're going to find five paragraphs related to this topic, and they're all dealing with the perpetrator of the crime with one little sentence mentioning the crime victim in allocution. Wow. So I think that obviously we'll probably be updated somewhere along the line. <laughs> yeah, I think so, so too. Uh, this is a relatively new thing. and One of the things we like to talk about, what we mentioned beforehand, and using the terminology, crime victim and perpetrator. Um, and what are the other words that we see in court, though? They're for the crime victim, we say plaintiff, and then we see for the perpetrator, we see defendant. But we decided. What do you think about those terms, Jerry? They could make me scratch my head, you know? Well, I get them mixed up. Uh, and it's not yeah. just me. I hear other people get them mixed. The only person who doesn't get this mixed up is Mary Jane, my wife. She she keeps these things perfectly straight, but I can't, and you can't either. Uh, oh, and so we're going with perp and vic. <laughs> yeah, perp is the so for perpetrator. We quite often say perp. We try to act like we're a part of the police force, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, you know, there's a perp walk too. I don't know if you're aware of that. No, I'm not. Yeah, that's where they march the guy into the police station. Uh, the perp walk is what the, all the uh, photographers for the newspapers have to get a good shot of. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. So the, uh, so we've talked a little bit about, and, but the history of the crime victim allocution is relatively recent. I, uh, Maryland, uh, there's a website in Maryland in the, for the state of Maryland that they give kind of a history. And if, if you take a look in terms of states, it kind of goes, it goes back as far as the mid sixties is that they have documented. Mm-hmm. The problem with this, with, uh, crime victim allocution is it's, it's a small subset of crime victim rights because they've right. got a variety of rights. I mean, it, and, and so we'll talk a little bit about them in general, but we're going to concentrate actually on the allocution, but that's so what happens is, when the federal law, um, Ronald Reagan back in 1982 decided to, to assemble a crime victors, uh, victims task force, which resulted in stronger federal legislation in the nineties that was amended. And it's amazing. It's a complicated thing. And as I uh, pointed out to you, Jerry, that, um, it gets complicated often because the crime victim is asked to testify. Mm-hmm. And then once he's testified, then later on, he has an opportunity for allocution. And what's, what can be really confusing is if that allocution is not consistent with the testimony, it, although, you know, you can't go back and do a rerun, uh, you can't get a second try. It does make things a little messy with respect to the trial. Yeah. So, and I um, think this is sometimes used as an excuse to limit, uh, some of this. Uh, the defendants, the perpetrator's lawyer does not like allocution and the prosecutor does and that's the war here over allocution you you raised a good point and the fact is historically judges have used that very fact that i just described 
that inconsistency that can possibly take place yeah. as a as an that's an excuse not to allow it. Mm-hmm. Well, fortunately, the laws have kind of clarified that and have made it possible for that. That excuse can't be used anymore. So, um, yeah, what's the timeline on that? So in the 60s, it was it was starting to show up in states. And then they, when did it get federal? It got federal. There was the first law of federal laws in the early 90s. And then there was a clarification act that came out in 1997, Fed. And you have to understand, though, that the, these rules deal with Fed cases. So the importance lies in the fact that as we go down and drill down to states, that states then react ac- uh, accordingly. And, you know, there's been a lot of updates with rules, et cetera. I don't want to get into the minutia of all of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there has been, I guess what we can say is, in one word, that the uh, allocution has become refined in terms of how it is documented in terms of legislation and laws, et cetera. But uh, that, that's been real important. And I, I also like to point out that, you know, the, 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 uh, there's all other kinds of things involved in it. And some things you would say, well, doesn't a victim have that already? And some of the things that had to evolve out of the, this legislation are like rights to look at records, getting notifications as to when the court's going to be holding that case. Even presence in trial has been contested and had to be reinforced in terms of, of legislation. So some of the things that we take for granted are, are had to actually go into law so that they could take place and give that crime victim an opportunity that feel that they're part of the action. Yeah, so, that they've had their, their it's, you can't say a day in court because it's not a day in court really, but it's a chance to address the court, including the defendant or the perpetrator. And uh, you cannot interact with the, well, you know the rules, you can't interact with the right. court, but you can address him, even name him, whatever, or her, but it's a chance for the victim. And we'll talk about the deeds of that as I talk about my experience with it. Well, the thing is that you're, you're, it's, it's a point well taken. You're not going to be there to, 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 to be a part of what the eventual result is of the trial, but you get an opportunity afterwards, and that's important. I'm glad you've emphasized the timing of that. But as we look at that, you say, well, what, what good is that? Well, you're going to be giving us personal experience. The fact is that, that crime victim, victims then feel a sense of value in terms of what they're doing. They feel good that they're able to get do this. It kind of brings a complete circle to the exercise, you yeah. know, because the crime, uh, you know, the crime victim there, and he gets this it kind of what you'd say, the final say in, in with regards to it. The last and word. It, yeah, right. the last word. And it provides balance to the system because as we take a look at it, uh, you could, in two words, say you've got a prosecutor versus a crime victim because you know the prosecutor is emphasized on that side of it while the defendant's uh attorney is on the back end because you think more the victim um so this kind of brings a lot of a a better balance to the the whole exercise well yeah i i do and you know that's the whole point of the judicial system if you look outside of most courthouses they have that uh greek or roman uh god holding up a scale that's that you know a balanced scale that yeah. used to be used for weighing and and you know one side is a little higher than the other and the whole point of the judicial system is to even that out so that well, everybody has a chance 
Exactly. And I and I think it's it's something that has evolved and I'm just it's it's amazing that we haven't had an op we've had an opportunity to see it in place. Uh you can go as we've talked about before with Larry Nasser, uh you can go back and listen to some to some of the testimony and see the the value that it provides to the victims, their their ability to to address directly the 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 perp can it has so much um, value to 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 the uh, to the victim. Uh, the other thing that, as we kind of get into the personal experience, and this is something that you can really tell us a lot about, and that is exactly what's allowed. What uh-huh. is a victim? Is another thing. You're you're a good have a good example. Yeah. Is the victim the one that's directly been affected? Well, we find well, that there are a lot of dead. people that have been affected. If yeah, if he's dead, then. Oh. The victim is going to be the family. Yeah, and then the someone has to stand. Someone has to stand for the dead. That's what I right. is. And we find that what you're allowed to do, how much time, what you can say. Uh, in fact, I've read where quite often judges require you to actually write out your mm-hmm. allocution, mm-hmm. and then you need to stick close to the script. Now that's something that you personally can tell us that hey listen it's the wild west out there uh in terms of it because the judge carries all the weight and here come the judge. Yeah, here come the judge. Uh yeah, I I have to I just one more comment I had to make about the Larry Nasser thing. I think that the that one Nasser trial where we had 160 women allocute, I think that is probably at least so far the most famous because not only that these women address Larry Nasser, address the court, address the judge. They address the nation because these, you can find it out there on YouTube. You can see these women talk. And some of them are very aware of the fact that they have a national and even international audience because a couple of them said, we're not stopping with you. We're, we're going to keep up this fight. We're done sitting back and letting these things happen to us. We are going to go forward and we're going to root out all the people who made it possible for you to do this. I think it's kind of a, a, a I wouldn't call it dangerous, but it's a little tricky situation when, when these, these women get up there because they have the, like you said, they have the opportunity to broaden out the, mm-hmm. the, the nature of the crime to the extent that that, um, that, that umbrella yeah. gets bigger and all of a sudden it's capturing others. Yeah, well, you said it. You said it. It's up to the judge. And I'll give you my personal experience in a minute. But uh, as prelude to this whole part of it, you know, I do want to make this personal because uh, I was thinking as we talked, we've talked for two weeks now about doing this. Uh, We couldn't. We got a little early start on this, this particular show, which obviously is not going to have a sports and film section and all that. This is just about allocution because it's an important topic. It's timely. And uh, it's it's more interesting in its application than you might think. And right. also, as you said, John, how it's applied to different places is very different. Uh, I'm going to go back to uh, what my experience was with this and how I got myself ready for my allocution. And the first thing was that I, I just thought back in my mind and I thought, you know, how do I talk about what our loss was when we lost our son? How do I talk about the judicial process and how I feel about it and the punishments that were meted out to to uh, the perpetrator 
and all this stuff. So all this was swimming around in my head, and I, I knew I had to sit down and really think this through. The pivotal experience for me was that I, I, I kept thinking, how do I relate this loss? How, what, how do you tell another human uh, that you've, you've lost something? Sure, it's your son, but it's so much more than your son. You can't convey it in words. But what I did was I got to thinking the first time I really saw that kind of grief did not even involve humans directly. The first time I saw it was uh, number 32, one of our, our cattle on the farm. And uh, she uh, couldn't deliver her calf because it got turned around. And uh, yeah, this was rough. All the breach, and, breach birth, I think. Breach birth of a sort. And so yeah. Pop and, and one of the neighbors oh. had to actually oh. reach in there, put a chain around this poor little calf's head or feet yeah. or whatever, pelvis, I think, and pull it out with a tractor. Oh. And this poor mother uh, cow uh, endured all this. And then, you know, I, I remember vividly, you know, this experience, obviously, and I couldn't take my eyes off of her. And she, even before we got there, the tear stains going down her face were uh, so stark. And she was in huge, huge pain, not just from mm. the pain, but she knew she was losing her baby. And, you know, you don't think about cattle this way because you're going to eat them. Let's just be honest. But, you know, I, I, I at that moment did not think about steak or ribeyes. I was just looking right. at those tears. And then as they pulled the, the calf out, she immediately turned around and tried to, uh, you know, lick the afterbirth off of the, the calf like they always do when they're born. And that's also a way of getting the calf to get up and, and walk. Mm -hmm and all kinds of stuff, and she was going through the motions, and after a while, you know, she she just kind of just started staring at the calf, and then about that time we left, and uh, I guess Pop and, and whoever else was there couldn't take it anymore, And but I, I, I had to go back, and so I went back about a half hour later, and she was still standing there staring at her calf, but something had changed. The... Uh, all of the cows in our herd were lined up behind her in a semicircle, perfectly ordered. And, and I mean, it was like the, it was a perfect pattern, a semicircle behind her. And they did not move. They didn't say anything. They just stood there. And she just was looking down at her calf and crying. And I thought to myself, that is exactly how I felt. It was so biological. This is not a grief that you have words for. It's not a grief that you can express to another human being. It is a very physical, biological thing. There are things going on inside of you that have nothing to do with words or even feelings. It is your whole body is built to procreate, and it was denied. It was denied. And, and it just, well, you know, to say it feels like shit isn't even close. So that was what I was feeling, and I said, Wow, I'm not going to tell that story in court, but you know, I needed that so I could prepare myself. Now we get to court, and uh, the prosecutor is not there. The the assistant district attorney. It's a, in Austin City Court, uh, and so you know we had to wait. We had to wait about an hour because uh, they wouldn't start it without him. He was in another trial that he could not get out of. Uh, he's litigating, so we waited and waited in the process. Uh, as he got there, uh, he called my name and, and called me back to the jury room, and we had a private conversation for about at least 20 minutes. 
And we, we talked it out a little bit, and he wanted to know what I was going to say, what I had in mind. And then he told me, only one person can allocute, and you only have three to five minutes. And I was shocked, because I just watched 160 women allocute for uh, five days. Five said, days, that's amazing. I was going to mention the days, I'm glad you did, just to but, demonstrate but, you know, the weight of, the, just in sheer days compared, you look at the trial, say this trial lasted how many days, maybe two weeks. And you've got close to half of it, allocution. So that kind of demonstrates the flexibility that can take place. So go ahead and explain how yours worked out in terms of that. Well, uh, Matthew was the fellow's name, and he was really good. And we had talked to his office a couple times during the process of, of uh, going to trial. And we never went to the trial. It was the first time we were in court. And so... But we, we got to weigh in on what we thought the punishment should be. And Mary Jane and I and Kristen, uh, who's Joe's wife, uh, estranged wife, but nevertheless his wife, and she was the next of kin. We weren't. So we were in the back seat in this whole process. We all three of us said, uh, it is not going to help anyone to send this kid to prison. Uh, it's really not going to help him get back on track if he's a, 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 a felon. You know, felon. This is a felony. What he, what he did. He he did. It's not vehicular man, manslaughter. It's not any of that stuff. He got prosecuted for a form of leaving the scene. What he did was he hit Joe. Joe flew. Uh, hit his windshield and flew over about fifty feet, and he was dead before he hit the ground. But he, he got his body really totally mashed up. It was terrible. And so then this guy goes another. 200 feet before he stops his car, opens the door, looks back, closes the door, and takes off. About, I would say, five, if the time, I've got this timeline right, less than five minutes later, he hears sirens and he turns around. And he kind of came to and came back and, you know, said what happened and, and talked to the police who were already on, on there. And we weren't there yet. And so, you know, that all took place. And uh, so, you know, that's his crime. Uh, not rendering aid to a victim was his crime. I, I think what's interesting about that is the fact that this is, a, this is the classic example. It's not the specific incident, but it's your reaction. And how mm -hmm. often have we said it's not the crime, it's the cover-up? cover-up. Yeah, exactly. This is, a, this is kind of taking that to another, you know, another example of it. And uh, they wanted so, yeah, to arrest him. When we first started talking to the assistant district attorney, uh, his people, we didn't talk directly with him. Uh, he wanted he wanted to throw the book at the kid. And I, I, I was probably the strongest advocate for leniency. And I don't call it leniency. I said, why don't we have a punishment that's appropriate to the crime? Uh, what's he going to learn from going to prison except become a career criminal, possibly? And, uh, you know, to survive, he's going to have to make some deals in there. Otherwise, you know, he's young. He's not going to make it. By the way, so, how old is he? He's a, <laughs> a little younger than Joe. Okay, so you, you, you mentioned the word kid, but, you know. To me, he's a kid. In a, yeah, to, exactly. At our age, that's a relative term when we say kid. Very. That could be anywhere from 15 to 30. No, he, he yeah, I, you know, I never got his age. Uh, and, and, and let me go into the story because it gets, it gets more interesting. So that's framing it and tell you what the crime is. And so I'm, I'm told you have 
three to five minutes and no, your wife can't allocute, you or your wife can allocute or Kristen, you know, we have to know who and we have to have some idea what you're going to say. And I said, well, I've got at least 20 minutes in me. And if I don't get it out, I'm going to be very unhappy. I'm not going to pitch a fit or anything. I'm not going to cause trouble. But this is a bad situation. And I told him, you know, hey, you know, 12 days after Joe died, I, I turned up, you know, with uh, stage four cancer and almost died. I couldn't pee and I hadn't peed for two days and I really didn't even realize it. And so I said, I was, this is terrible. And then my treatment was, you know, castration. So, hey, I, I want some time. I played all my cards. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. And, and I wasn't doing it to manipulate him. I was just talking from the heart because that's how I felt, obviously. And so he said, let me talk to the judge. This is a good judge. And I did ask him about the judge. And he said, she's mm. really empathetic and compassionate. She's a good woman. I said, okay. So then I went back out and, my, and Mary Jane's gone. Where'd Mary Jane go? So I, I just sit in, in, in the seat there among all the other people who are kind of witnessing the, uh, you know, the seats everyone sits in when they're in court, kind of like pews in a church. And so uh, I'm waiting and Mary Jane comes in and says, where were you? Where were you? And I said, well, I went to talk to Matthew. You saw me take off. She said, I, I didn't realize you'd be that long. I said, yeah, we had quite a talk. And I got news for you. And um, I was about to tell her. She says, uh, forget that. Uh, I saw Melvin. That's Melvin Alvarez is the perpetrator in this case. I saw Melvin and his family leaving. So I followed him out. I thought they weren't going to be here. And she said, I, you know, I had to talk to them. And it was amazing. My, my gutsy little five-foot wife. She just went right out there to them, and she just went right up to Melvin and said, are you Melvin Alvarez? And he said, yes, I am. And she says, I'm Mary Jane Daniels. He immediately hugged her and started crying and apologized. Oh, so this, and then his mom was there. She got in on the hug and was crying, and his fiance was there, and his sister was there. And so this was a very moving, right outside the doors of the courtroom kind of thing. And I had just gotten a speech from the prosecutor that I can't have any contact with the defendant. <laughs> so uh, this is the, so I, my head's swimming at this point, you know, hearing this story. And then I said, are they, are they going to be here? And she said, I don't think so. I think they left. So I called Matthew over and I said, what's the deal? He says, oh, he'll be here. Don't worry about that. I said, oh, okay. So I relaxed a little bit. And sure enough, within five minutes, uh, I, I kind of heard someone come in and I looked around. And it was it was Melvin and his family in the back. And I, I just took, went a beeline to him and, and did more or less the same thing Mary Jane did. And uh, I was surprised by how I felt when I met them. This could have been our family. That's the point. He did not intend to hit Joe. And, and he was not doing anything wrong. And Joe was not doing anything wrong. It's just one of those things. Bad weather, fog, it's early in the morning, uh, boom, it happened. And that could have been Joe hitting him. And that could have been us sitting there, you know, tearing our hearts out of our chest. So well, you, I you know, The other point is that this is Saturday. This is not even what you call a typical rush hour traffic situation. I mean, that's Joe's how... Dead. Yes, it was Saturday morning. Yeah. Correct. Correct. He's on his way to work and on, on his bicycle, doing the right thing, right? That He was very proud of the fact that, you know, he was not polluting the planet. And so... You know, his, yeah, you always get rewarded for doing the right thing. No, not really. So that happened. We went through all that stuff. Now, you know, we're within minutes of my elocution, and the whole thing shifted in my head because of that experience I just had. And so 
I don't know what happened. I thought, well, I don't know what I'm going to say. I was at that point. So then the judge calls the court to order, does the usual things, you know, that you hear a judge do. She's a, a, a nice looking, uh, attractive middle aged woman. Uh, I would say forties, maybe early fifties. And the, the, her, her little place where she sits is up pretty high for a small courtroom. And then they have the usual arrangement, arrangement of seats around her. One side is the court reporter, the other side is the bailiff, and then there's the witness stand. And then they call my name and, and I go up to Matthew and Matthew says, sit in the, uh, the witness seat. You will not be sworn in or under oath. Just tell your story. So I did and, uh, got there. And the only parts of it I remember is looking straight at this little bitty microphone and adjusting it a little bit, looking at the judge, waiting for her to say something to me. And she said, go ahead, Mr. Daniels. And I did. And the next thing I really remember is finishing and looking over at her and she's crying. Mm. And I, I thought, Oh my God, you know, and, uh, I wasn't sure that I said the right thing and I was very confused and bewildered. But I talked evidently for a solid 15 or 20 minutes. And, uh, then I, I, I had my, uh, urinary collection bag on and my catheter hooked up and, uh, it got tangled up in the chair and I had trouble getting up. And the bailiff came over and helped me get up. And then, uh, he, he put his hand on my back and said, would you like some water? And I said, yeah, I guess. And I drank a cup of water and kind of, I was shaking a little bit and got back to my seat and, but I didn't make it to my seat. The, uh, the woman who we'd worked closely with, who is a, a liaison for the district attorney's office, uh, was an older black woman who had been doing this job for about 30 years. And she put her arm around me and said, I've been doing this for 30 years. I've never heard anything like that. And I mm -hmm. said, Oh my God, what did I say? And then, uh, uh Matthew did the same thing. And, and on my way back to sit down and, and uh, Mary Jane didn't say anything. So I wasn't sure what happened. I was freaking out a little bit inside, but just went along with it. And we talked a little more to the Alvarez's and then I went home. And then finally, you know, later in the day, I said, Mary Jane, did I, did I really fuck that up? Cause you didn't say a word. She says, Oh no, 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 no. And she told me the whole thing. And so it was mm -hmm. effective, I guess. Uh, and mostly, I guess I, I talked a lot to Melvin. And uh, because I do remember one thing about the allocution, when I looked at his eyes, I saw my eyes. I have the same death and despair in my eyes when I don't mask it. And he had the same thing, and he masks it too, but we couldn't hide it from each other. We, we were in the same boat. We were both in the same kind of pain. And uh, it was a clarifying moment for me. I wasn't the same person for about a week. I couldn't really do anything except talk to you in the morning and do a few things throughout the day. I'm still kind of uh, recovering from it. But on the other hand, uh, I do feel it was one of the defining moments in my life. Uh, and these kinds of things have happened to me before where I don't have any recall. But I know that I said something that was important and that I had to say. And uh, uh, this is, I guess, this ability to kind of check out and let something come out of me that is bigger than me is something I've done a number of times. And, uh, that's one of the reasons that I guess uh, I got in that when I got involved in doing sweat lodges and stuff like that, a medicine man kind of adopted me and said, look, you know, 
somehow you know what to do and you're not even Indian. He said, so, uh, you know, I want to work with you and all that kind of stuff. And we've worked together for quite a few years. And uh, that's why, I guess, is this little thing that happened. This <laughs> Most people would call it a disorder, I guess. But it happened. And it happened in court. And um, I guess I didn't know it would. I didn't plan on it. I didn't summon any special ability. And I don't feel like I have one. But I had I to do that. I, can I, I think that yeah, we, please. Uh, if I you talk. talk a little bit about it, I, I got a, a question. Sure. And that was critical to your, your, what you say, and, and well, you've talked to me a little bit about it, is actually the, the sentence that Melvin got. Because I think that plays a key. In, oh, yeah. In, you know, so kind of describe the sentence. And, uh, and by the way, was the sentence was obviously given to him before you allocuted, correctly? Correct, right. although my yeah. understanding is if the ju judge is going to read the sentence after I allocute, and she did. Okay. And, but you pretty uh, well have an idea what it would be. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, okay, absolutely. Good, good, we were good. given the deeds. Uh, okay. Now, a little background, too, I should say. Uh, that The situation with the victim's rights and the ability to allocute at a trial that I just described is unique to Austin and Travis County. It is not the case in the rest of the state of Texas. They, 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 we kid around and call Austin the People's Republic of Austin because it is a, it is a democratic, liberal, progressive county among solid red counties. So this is unique. The defendants reacted to the victim's rights bill in Austin and got more rights to the point where the basic rule of thumb is one allocution, three to five minutes. Otherwise, we're walking. So that's the background. And I got that straight from, from Matthew, who has watched this happen over a, the course of a decade. So I was shocked when that judge did not say a word to me or interrupt me or anything. And the defense lawyer did not say a word to me or anything. It was kind of I, what Mary Jane said was once you started talking, everyone knew that you were going to talk until you were done and no one was going to give you any shit. I said, really? She said, oh, yeah. She said, you were doing that thing. That's like code to us. And so, okay. So that's, so you see, there's tremendous latitude, even in a place where the, where the perpetrators have stronger rights than in most places. Even that can crumble pretty quickly if the judge doesn't intercede or the defendant, uh, or his lawyer doesn't intercede. And Melvin was not going to intercede, and I'm sure his lawyer wasn't either. He wanted to hear what I had to say, and even though it hurt. So, yeah. Uh, so the question the sentence, is... The, back to the your sentence. question. The sentence. Here's, here's what. They wanted him to go to prison. But I, I was strong against it. I said, if you're going to give him some community service where he can see what the result of this kind of thing is, if you could get him on, an, on, on a meat wagon, that would be ideal. Uh, it sounds harsh, but that would do the trick. And they said, now we can't do that because of insurance and then, you know, all that stuff. So we negotiated, negotiated. Finally, the sentence is that uh, he has a five to 20 year sentence in prison for not rendering aid, leaving, sign of a, uh, leaving the scene of a crime, uh, of a uh, hit and run. But the judge agreed to adjudicate the sentence, which means 
I'm going to exaggerate here. It's like she puts the sheet of the sentence that she signs in her drawer and never executes it. On, as long as he meets the terms of his probation. The terms are urine tests, no drugs, no alcohol. Uh, weekly probation meetings. Uh, what else? Uh, oh, he's got to repay Joe's funeral expenses within six months. Okay, restitution. Restitution, exactly. And then what's the other thing? He's got to write a letter of apology to us. And then there's, I think that's just about it. But he's really got to keep his nose clean. And <laughs> I found out right before I allocated that he had already violated uh, his parole. He showed up with uh, THC, the active ingredient of marijuana, in his bloodstream for his first uh, random drug test. Oh. Well, yeah, he got a 30-day sentence for that, evidently, before this particular uh, session in court, but it was rolled into the probation. So evidently, he's got some probation on that, too. i got a couple things here. Number one, mm -hmm. uh, based upon the sentence you've got, I'm assuming he had a rap sheet before this. Did he? Did he have other... other he, uh, uh, juvie stuff. He had some juvie stuff yeah. that was sealed, okay. and it was minor. It was minor. Okay. I did hear what it was. It was minor. The other thing is, is I think it's real critical that the sentence be discussed. We discussed that only because it plays an important role in your allocution and your approach. Because you've just mentioned, here's a here's a, an individual, here's a perp who has already crossed the wrong line, and mm -hmm. so what you say is critical, I think, to make Mary sure. Jane, give Mary, yeah, Mary Jane said that I. <laughs> Said I was, she said I was really honest with them, and I told them that I said, uh, when I was younger than you, I spent a week in jail for possession of narcotics. I said, I'm no stranger to the court system, and, uh, uh, you know, the truth was that, you know, I was acquitted because they weren't my drugs, I didn't live there, etc. But, you know, it can really derail your life. And I said, my, my career as a musician ended with that. And, uh, and not just that, I mean, it led to all kinds of terrible stuff uh, with my family, with my friends, with my ability to get a job, all kinds of problems. And I said, if, if you don't want to keep coming back here and, and dealing with this judge, then you've got to follow the judge's instructions. And I said, when I was 23, I stopped taking drugs and drinking because I had to. Otherwise, I would have been in, in you know, coming back to court all the time, too. And I said, I just made a decision, and I stuck with it, and you're, I'm afraid you're going to have to do the same thing. And I know all the kids smoke weed and all that stuff, but you're going to have to find new friends. It's just yeah. the way it works. And I was real honest with them and all that stuff, and this is what, and this is what Mary Jane said I said. So I, I related to him as to another make. human being. I, I treated him like a, a peer. Right. There's an element here in the elocution where you have an opportunity to... to a catharsis sort of thing where you can emote your uh, your frustration, your anxieties, etc. But you were able to put a spin on it that gives you probably as much relief and comfort by trying More. to help an individual More. Uh, see the right path that needs to be taken. I only said one thing about Joe during the whole thing. 
and that was at the beginning. I do remember this. I, I, I turned to the judge and I said, I don't want Joe to be forgotten. That was it. And the rest yeah. of it was, was other stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, I completely disclosed all the stuff with, you know, cancer and the treatment and all that stuff only for one reason. That was when I got to the end of that, I said, if I can sit here and do this, then you can go home, keep your nose clean, and get your life on track. Mm-hmm. You've got a fiance. I want to see you have children, you know, if you want them, and and create some productive citizens and, and happy people. You know, that's the whole point of this little journey. And I don't have a son. Why don't you make one for me? You know, stuff like that. That's yeah. evidently stuff I said. Wow, so, you, you sound like a better than the parole officer. <laughs> I was honest. <laughs> Evidently, I was completely transparent. Because, <laughs> as you know, I don't have much choice about it anymore. Yeah. I've got nothing Well, to it's an amazing story uh, that you've just described. Um, and like you, said, like you said, when you get that sort of emotion from not only the perp, but others around you, including the judge, uh, it, mm. it, it, I, I, it's impressive. And I think what we've got here is, and um, as we kind of bring closure to this, is what we wanted to talk about is to take a different spin on this. Yeah. And the fact is that, that individuals, hopefully, other people will not have to go through what you did in terms of that. In other words, be a victim. But when we take a look at this experience, what I thought about, I said, you know what? This sounds like the kind of thing we have to go through when we grieve the loss of an individual as far as, as part of the funeral, wake, yeah. whatever you call process. Because what happens is that the family are, are in, in some way a victim of death because they've lost somebody that's dear to them. Mm. And so what happens here is that usually there comes a time in the process during the, 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 the funeral, the wake, that you or the, the, the minister comes up and says those words, does anybody have anything to say? <laughs> and uh, the fact is that that is a point in time in which elocution, elocution could be used. Uh, yes. In other words, a person could get up and not only be helping themselves as they describe how they feel the loss, but also be helping the family, the people that are left. Uh, and it's real important. Yeah. Um, well, and I, I think, think we... The- yeah, yeah, yeah. The key thing is, what's the key thing at a funeral? You don't want the dead person to be forgotten. That is number right. one. So you're going to tell stories, anecdotes, good, bad, funny, whatever, about that person. So everyone there will have something to walk away with, and they won't forget your mother, brother, father, sister, whoever it is that's in that casket, or if they have one. And then the the other thing I think also is what you said. That's really... Uh, not forgetting is part of it. Now, you know, when we cry at a funeral, we're crying for ourselves, if we're honest, because we can't picture our life without this person, and we're feeling sorry for ourselves and, 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 and just in distress. We're having that, that reaction that number 32 had to her calf. You know, mm-hmm. it's just, ugh, you can't, I think of her mooing the way it sounded when she was mooing, and it was just, it was hoarse. And it was filled with tears. And that's a cow. 
And, you know, we lived on a farm, and we became pretty callous about animals living on a farm yeah. because they get oh. eaten. <laughs> yeah. You're going to butcher some of these animals, and so mm. you don't name them. That's why number 32 didn't have a name. <laughs> so, right. yeah. So that's what you're going through at a funeral. But the, the doggone padre, he hands you a, a blank piece of paper, <laughs> you know, and and you're like already in grief, many of the people there. And now you're supposed to put words together. You're, and you can't. You're freaking out. Most people don't like to talk in front of a, a group of people like that. And you, you not only, you're not like in a circle in an AA meeting. No, 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 no. You're up next to the pulpit. You may even be at the pulpit. That's very intimidating. It very is. Intimidating. And that, that to me is, is part of the frustrating part of the funeral process is that. Oh, it's terrible. Quite often what happens is that. The, this is, you know, the, the family's grieving and they've got enough to try to figure out what to do to make sure everything's in place. Yeah. And the, the last thing they're, they're thinking about is, well, what's going to happen when that, that minister gets up there, the, the, the one proceeding and asks that question and all of a sudden, oops, has anybody Nobody. really thought that through? And if yeah. it hasn't been thought through, you've just described it. The fact is that, you know, you, you're, you've got a lot of peers there. You've got a lot of individuals. Typically, it's not a m immediate member of the family that gets up there and discusses it. Hopefully so, not. <laughs> yeah, you don't want that. You, that's not the result you're looking for. No, it isn't. Um, no. you know, and, I thought, like, at Marge's funeral, I thought over and over again, no one's talking, no one's getting up. Oh, shit, should I do that? And and I'm good at talking in front of people, and it doesn't frighten me or anything like that. But I thought to my but my fear of my family kept me from getting up because I just, I just did not want to have to take any shit for what I said. Because so I my personal be... experience is the fact that in, like you mentioned, my wife, March, died of cancer in 2007. And I have my family there. Uh, and March's family is there. And that question is answered, asked by the minister who did an incredible job. He was good. Yeah, and nobody gets up. And, and I'll tell you, that has left a, uh, a, a memory, a mark on me that I will never forget. And as a result, I, <laughs> what I did for, as a result of that is the next funeral I, I go to that I remember is I'm up in North Dakota where my mother's from. And we were going to a celebration of some centennial. I think it was 125th anniversary of the, of the town, New Salem, mm -hmm. uh, North Dakota. And coincidentally, her sister's husband, my mother's sister's husband, passes away a day or two before we get there. And we go to the wake. And I just thought what happened to me, and I said, I can't let this happen again. This is a man that has died that I have probably seen three or four times in my life. Yep, yep. And I decide to go up and allocute. Well, and, and how old were you when you saw him? Oh, I was like, you know, 10, 12. I was 11 or 12 years old. Mm -hmm. I, I was able to relate a incident, a story, because he was a dairy farmer, that I felt demonstrated the qualities in, of his life that, were, that, that I thought were important. And uh, it made me feel good to do it. But the fact is that I kind of was overreacting to my the black spot on my uh, on me that you know was right there. I put this indelible mark of the yeah. fact that there was this this vacuum that existed at 
my wife's funeral that I did not want to happen there. And uh, and it's kind of funny. Nobody came up to me afterwards and said anything. And I finally realized that, you know, it, 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 it was good, but it, it probably wasn't appropriate. But I had to do it because nobody was do doing it. it. But a little more background. Everybody hated Bill. Yeah, I'm afraid that's what I learned. Um, yeah. Hate, yeah. Well, Joe and I he went up had... a few years before he died, and we experienced that firsthand. He's not, not, not a nice guy. Well, that that might be, yeah, I mean... And that, um, in fairness to you, that developed in the intervening years. He wasn't that way when we met him when we were mm -hmm. kids. Right. So, interesting, huh? So, but I think what, what we get out of this is the fact that you, you, hopefully you don't have to do what you've done, Jerry, and allocute at, at, at a court proceeding, but you do have these opportunities. And so I yeah. think it's important that, uh, you know, you can address this in a variety of ways. Uh, I think that if a person really has a strong urge to do it, they could go to the members of the family, and what's going to happen is if you address this and say something like, well, have you considered having allocution if somebody come up and say something on behalf of the family in terms of the individual? If you ask that question to the family, guess what they're going to do? They're going to look at you and say, would you like to do it? That's right. That's probably going to be the response. Yeah. Why so, wouldn't it be? Um, it was on your was, mind, so maybe It's you on my it. mind, yeah. and what you need to do is you need to break the ice. Yeah. And make that Somebody happen. Needs to. If one person does it, then everybody else follows. And I've done a couple funerals myself, led them and stuff, and uh, you have to be engaging. You have to engage the, I'm not going to say congregation, the audience. Mm -hmm. and uh and and that's what i did and we we had a eulogies allocations whatever you want to call them <coughs> allocutions for a good solid hour mm. and they were great they were really great half of them were so funny you couldn't stop laughing and the other half of them you couldn't stop crying yeah that's what you want you, you want, want that everyone everyone to do and i ran the funeral more or less like an indian funeral because that's the way I was taught to, to do these mm -hmm. things. And it's very effective. Those people know about death and they know about loss because they have more of it than anyone in the United States. And so that, that's just the way I did it. And it works. But the standard uh, Protestant, Catholic, Judaic model for these things has gotten worse over time, not better. The distance between the priest or the rabbi and the a congregation gets greater and greater, doesn't get less and less. That's what breaks down, in my opinion, is you're, you're going from, this is God talking, to, oh, and by the way, do you want to pretend like you're God and say something too? <laughs> right? Yep. It's too big of a gulf. You, you can't, and by the way, there's everyday allocution, not to over, not to overuse the word or to stretch it beyond its, definition but what it is is you talking other people or person listening and not interrupting and you have something you need to get off your chest yeah. right yeah. well you and i do that we talk two hours at least every day once in a while we'll take a day off because we've got something going on but you know i need it if i have to talk to you <laughs> i need a breather you do. 
I'm afraid. I mean. I, I give you that option, though. I'm very generous. And I always take, you notice I always take it. I've noticed that, Don. I can't let you off the hook too much, though. But anyway, we allocate to each other, and it goes as much from you to me as it does from me to you. Right? Yeah. Yes. The truth. Wow. So, well, it, yeah. it, it's, uh, it's an, I'm glad they were able to talk this through and get it to, I think, a point where, um, this is the spin that starts with the gymnasts who yeah. are allocuting. You have your personal experience with allocuting. I have an experience that is sort of like what I would call almost a transferable skill or a variation thereof that people need to think about in terms of themselves because they unfortunately will be confronted with a situation where they have an opportunity to participate in this. So, um, you know, as we bring closure to this and we've had a very serious topic, it reminded me, I was just kind of, I would like to leave this on a little bit lighter note. And you mentioned those, the, the number on the, on the cattle, number 32. Yeah. Um, of course, when I think 32, I think of 1964 when, when Jim Brown, Sandy Koufax, uh, Cookie Gilchrist and Elston Howard all won most valuable player awards and they were wearing number 32. Okay. But here's Ooh. my point. That's, I was being a little pedantic there. I couldn't help. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the 32 right reminded me of something else. When we were kids out on the farm, and here we are, you know, we're like anywhere from 5 to 10, 11, 12 years old. We were given some responsibility. And one yeah. of the responsibilities we had was our father would like us to go out and uh, observe the cattle, the herd. And our, uh, our job was to see what the bull was doing with certain cows so he could anticipate that maybe number 32 was, was who we birth. had to watch so we had to watch these cows but what we would like to do is we would go back because the bull had a number two number also we would go I mean, back and tell our father we would say well number 16 is uh is kind of uh you know on top of number 32 the only problem was that we were talking about two cows Females yeah. doing it, and then he simulating. would give us, a, yeah, and yeah, they were simulating, but we we'd get in trouble because he would say that can't be true. I, I don't know if that was his, uh, uh, if that was his <laughs> attitude towards homosexuality or what. Yeah, I think it was, but it wasn't that actually. Uh, I got another explanation later, and I think it was from somebody else. We had a lot of other farm folk around us that were really helped pop out quite a bit, to tell you the truth. And I was told it was called bullying. And that's when, <laughs> if, if, it's called bullying because it's a way of telling the bull, I'm ready. Oh, and I so see. So the cows do that for each other to send the signal to the bull in case his nose isn't working. I thought we were just playing a prank on our father. Because no. it got to the point that I didn't care whether they were doing anything or not. I'd always come back and tell them two cows were doing it. Well, I was just curious about it. what the hell hole he put that thing in. Oh, Because they're both almost oh, in the on. same spot. Okay, okay, okay. Well, sorry. It's the way the cows are. I was just trying to, to make a point that uh, I thought it was a good prank I was pulling. No. Because I would go back. I wouldn't even go out and see the cows. I'd just give them two numbers that were two cows, and he'd get upset. Well, the truth <laughs> is, is that uh, that's important intelligence you gathered, my friend, because that tells you who's up next. Yeah, I know. I kind of dropped the ball on that, but. I couldn't help it. I just was. No, you didn't drop the fun. ball. You, you were. You thought you were. You, you were uh, carrying out a prank, which is, you know, in our family, that's a 
very honored uh, thing to do. <laughs> so I will recognize your valor and your okay. your creativity. Uh, uh, pranks are are good things in our family. Yeah, lighten uh, lighten it up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. What the heck? Good show, John. I, I like okay. the topic. I, I thought it needed to be done, and I I like the way you took it a little farther with the. Funerals. I hadn't thought of that until you brought it up, but you're exactly right. Eulogies and allocutions aren't that different. Hey, you know what? You mentioned something that I want to kind of leave as a tease in oh, terms yeah. of what's going on here, and that is I noticed you mentioned that your musical career was interrupted. I think, mm -hmm. I, let's just make that clear. Interrupted. It was not stopped. Music is interrupted. interrupted. That means... <laughs> That means that somewhere you haven't your your musical career hasn't ended. It needs it's, to be revived. It's been revived. Part of the therapy. It's part of your. It therapy. is part of my therapy. It is part of my. Therapy. You know what? It's got to become part of a, a part of the podcast too. Well, already it's part of the podcast. I do the intro and the outro, and but now we're, we're going to take it a step further. We're going to. I think somewhere in our near future, it's going to be taken a step further. I look forward to that day. Well, I can say no more. Okay. Good enough. Adios, well, that's John. a wrap. Okay. We'll be talking. Okay, bye-bye.